reading from the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans, beginning with verse 24. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God.
Well, since chapter 6, Paul has been working with the assumption that we are in Christ. So here's a litmus for you. Have you faith in Christ? Are you trusting Christ to save you? Have you depended on His promises that if you are in the Son, then you have life? Have you been baptized? Are you washed? Are you ushered into Him? We enter into Him through baptism, through faith. We become in Christ. And Paul has been operating under the assumption that that phrase describes us, dear ones. It describes you and it describes me. And as I said earlier in our work here in Romans, that is something for us to think about. To ponder, are we in Christ? And if we ponder that question and we feel a sense of peace about it, then Paul says in this very chapter, then you have the assurance of the Spirit. For it is the Spirit of God who speaks to our spirits, saying we are the children of God. If you cry out, Abba, Father, in your prayers, and you find any sense of peace from that, if you can cry out, Abba, Father, to God, and you don't feel any hostility to God, then chances are pretty darn solid that you are in Christ. And then the promises of Romans 8 are for you. For they are for everyone who will come to him. For all who will receive his promise of life. For all who will not deny him, but respond and accept the peace that he offers. Our faith and our baptism are a bond that transcend our personal being. They join us to Christ in his death and his resurrection so that the life that we live even now is the life of Christ in us. It is by Christ we live. It is in Him, Paul says, that we live and move and have our being. And so if we are in Christ, then we are joined to Christ in a way that no outside force can shift. And through that bond, God is doing a magnificent work in us. For God's purpose is not to gather us to God's self and then turn God's back upon us. God's purpose is not to invite us to come to him and then leave us as we are. God's purpose, Paul says, is to conform us, to shape us, to mold us, to renew us to the image of his son. <laughs> One of my favorite pastors in my life was was Heo Kim. And he, I don't know if I would say he was the best preacher I've ever heard. But he said this thing that was kind of hokey. But I loved it. He said, if you ever doubt that you were loved, imagine the son on the cross holding out his arms to you. If you ever doubt that you have been drawn into something and invited into something that means something, imagine Jesus hanging on the cross calling to you with his hands open. It's beautiful. That is, in a sense, what Paul is saying here. There's a magnitude to it. There's a certainty to it that we need not ignore. God is doing a magnificent work in us, something that we can't yet even ponder. 
That's why he said in the previous reading that all of the things that we might suffer in this world are meaningless compared to the glory that is revealed in us. It's not our glory, but Christ's glory that is invisible and pe- that is visible, excuse me, and people who are being transformed into his image, which is love. Lest we forget Jesus hanging on the cross, looked down at the ones who nailed him there and prayed that they would be forgiven. As many things people have done to us, as things that we have suffered, I can't yet imagine that any of us have felt nailed to a cross, laying naked on a hill south of Jerusalem. That scorn, that shame, he undertook for us so that we could be transformed into the kind of love that would endure that for the sake of someone else. God's purpose is to conform us to the image of the Son, creating a family that is embedded in and marked by the self-giving love of Christ. And if you are in Christ, Paul says, you have already died to sin and death. You are and you will be raised to new life. And so he adds further promises here in chapter 8. He tells us at the end of last week's reading that if we have that hope of being made new, of being transformed, of a creation that's released from its frustration to bondage by sin and death, if we have the hope of the new creation where mortals will dwell with God, no, mark that. Revelation says God will dwell with us. If we have that hope of living in that paradise, that new creation, that new heaven and that new earth, Paul says we wait for it patiently. Mm. I don't know about you, but patience is sometimes hard to muster for me. Especially in the midst of all this mess. I don't know how many times I've said I can't wait for this to be over. I'm an introvert. There's no question about it. I can function alone. But isolation is a totally different thing. When we are put apart and it's not voluntary, it becomes harder and harder and harder. And this has been a test of my own endurance and my own hopefulness. But I have patiently waited and hoped. And Paul says that if you have been patiently and waiting and hoping, if you have been suffering, then take heart because in the midst of your patiently waiting, when you encounter something that is so hard for you that all you can do is sigh, can you imagine it? (sighs) How many times have you felt yourself be in that place where all you could do is sigh and say, my Lord, or God help me? Paul would tell you, That that is the Spirit helping you in your weakness. This is the promise that the Spirit helps us in our weakness by praying for us. In those times when when our spirit is brought so low that we don't even have the ability to form words of help. That the Spirit groans and sighs for us. Not only that, but the Spirit intercedes for us. 
in accordance with the will of God, he says, so that whatever the Spirit prays for us, whatever the Spirit hopes for for us, is the will of God for us. So if you find yourself so beaten down that you can't even form words, take heart, for the Spirit of God is at work in your life in that very moment, bringing you before the throne of God, seeking mercy on your behalf in words that you may not even be able to understand, in your sighs, in your tears, and even in your laughter, the Spirit of God speaks to your Father. And then Paul says that God works in all things. For Paul knows that there is something that has brought you to your knees. There is something that has brought you to the pit of despair. There is something that has caused you to look up and say, My God, why me? And Paul says that in all things, in good things and in bad, in sad things and in glad things, God is at work. God is at work in all things for the good of those who love Him. We should be careful, though. We wouldn't want to assume that God causes all things. In Lamentations 3, we hear these words, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. We should not be so quick to assume that the things that happen in our life that are bad are happening because God wills them. Sometimes they happen because people stink. And do ugly things to each other. And accidents happen. And sometimes we make bad choices. I know that everybody says everything happens for a reason. But I love that sign that says sometimes the reason is we're stupid. And make bad choices. But take heart. Even in those times when you may have been stupid and made bad choices. God has worked in those things. And labored to conform you to the image of Christ. For even Christ suffered. Not for his own sins, but for ours. He suffered unjustly at the hands of evil men. The Son of God given over to those who did not love God. God can work in that, then God can work in everything that comes into our life whether it is something that comes to us that is good for us or something that threatens our very sanity. Trust that God is at work in the midst of it because that is the Scripture's promise. God is working in all things for the good of those who love Him. What good, what is the purpose that God is working toward? God is working to conform us to the image of His Son, to perfect us in love. To make us into the family of God. And so Paul says God is for us. God is for us. God is on our behalf. Can there be any more comforting word than that? That the God who created all of the things that cause us all. That the God who created the Little Dipper and the Big Dipper and the Comet and the Largemouth Bass. The God who created all of those things is for us. 
concerned about us, loving us, caring for us. God is for us. And if God is for us, Paul says, who can be against us? If the one who has the power to raise Jesus out of the grasp of sin and death is for us, who can be against us? And then he says, there is no one who can condemn us. Remember last week he told us that we did not receive a, slave, a spirit of slavery for us to fall back into fear, into fear that we would be condemned for not living a perfect life. He says, no one can condemn us because Christ has died and Christ is risen. And Christ is the one who will judge. He says, who will bring any charge against you? God has justified you. If God has said that you are now in the right, as people say, who can challenge that? If God has spoken and said that you are not guilty, who can challenge that? If God has pardoned you, who can undo it? There is no one, he says, who condemns. Christ Jesus, who died, is interceding for us. It's one of my favorite sayings because it comforts me very deeply. You have heard me say it many times. The same Christ who died for us is the Christ who will judge us. What hope there is in that. The same Christ who died for you is the Christ who will judge you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So then, Paul says, yet another promise. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. The one who died for us, the one who will judge us. Nothing can separate you from his love. In times like these, when we have so much calamity going on around us, it is easy for us to get into deep self-examination and confront ourselves with all our past mistakes. When we spend a great deal of time alone, it's easy for us to dissect our lives and go back through them and find things that we can accuse ourselves and beat ourselves up for. But today, today Paul reminds us that you are not condemned. Not even you have the power to condemn yourself. You do not have the power to say that God can't love you. You do not have the power to say that God cannot pursue you. You do not have the authority to say that God doesn't love you. Because the outstretched arms of Christ say differently. And you are invited into a love that does not condemn a love whose judgment releases us from guilt. So Paul says, we are more than conquerors. For we don't rest in our own ability to overcome sin and death, but we rest in the ability of Christ who has overcome sin and death. 
We rest in the bosom of the one who said in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We are more than conquerors. We are not those who go out and labor and fight, but we are those who rest in the victory won. We are more than those who simply endure and wait to be rewarded. Instead, we are the ones who benefit from Christ who was conquered. And we now live in his victory. And again, he says, nothing, no one will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a set of promises for a troubled people. The Spirit is acting for us in our weakness, praying for us. The Spirit is moving us into a place that's in accordance with God's will. God works in all things to redeem them and redeem you. And God is working to conform you to the image of Christ. And God is for us. And if God is for us, there's no one who condemn us. And Christ Jesus who died is interceding for us. And nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And for that, we are more than conquerors. We are people who have overcome because Christ has overcome. And now there is most certainly no chance, no chance, no chance that anything in this world or anyone in this world can separate us from the love of Christ. Man, the power of God to be merciful and faithful and loving. How can we know that these wonderful promises are true and certain? How can we know how can we know? How can we be assured of God's faithfulness to us, of God's intent to stand by us? Romans 8.32, Paul writes, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, we not, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Again, listen. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How do we know that God is willing to make all things good for us? How do we know that God is actually willing to work in COVID and rioting and all the craziness that's going on in our world and bring something good out of it? How do we know that God won't just turn God's back on all of us and say, forget them? How do we know? How do we know? How do we know? How do we know that God is willing to make all things good? How do we know that the Spirit of God is interceding for us? How do we know? How do we know the depth of God's love for us? What is the measure of the magnitude of God's mercy, faithfulness, and love? Is there an end to it? I go back to Reverend Kim saying, think on the outstretched arms of the sun. That is essentially what Paul is saying here. 
He's reminding us of Abraham that we read about just a few weeks ago. The beloved son is a reference, a hindsight, a look back to Isaac stretched out on the altar when Abraham's faith was tested and Abraham called by God to demonstrate his faithfulness to God, went up Mount Moriah, laid his son out on an altar that he built in line with wood and stretched him out to kill him and offer him to God because as the book of Hebrews tells us, he reasoned in his heart that God could raise the dead and his faithfulness was utter and absolute and raw and God stayed his hand but Paul would tell us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a reversal of what happened at Moriah that what demonstrates to God and to us the faithfulness of Abraham is the self exact same thing that God used to demonstrate his faithfulness to us when he stretched out his own beloved son on an altar called earth and laid him down for us and gave him gave his life in our place that dear ones is the measure of the magnitude of God's mercy faithfulness and love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life that is the measure of certainty that we have that God will be faithful because God has given up something that costs more than we could ever imagine I remember hearing a story of Martin Luther who lived through a plague much worse than the one we are living through, who led his church through something that most of us can't even imagine. He lost his own son in the plague and his wife asked him where his God was when his son died. And Martin Luther said weeping as he wept when his son died. God is with us. And the sign of the depth of God's presence with us are the outstretched arms of Christ. That is the 1.5 times 10 to the 15th power order of magnitude. The 150 billion orders of magnitude. The greatest number you could ever imagine. You write it out. What God did is greater than even that. The order of the magnitude of God's faithfulness to us is the death and resurrection of his own son. The seal of these promises is the death and resurrection of Jesus. How, Paul says, could God do that and then not give us these things that he promises? How in the world, Paul asks, could God give up his only son for us and then turn God's back on us? What a beautiful question that is. It is the gospel. The good news, Christ died and has been raised and it is for you. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, God is at work on your behalf to conform you to the image of Christ, to recreate you anew and make you in the image of love itself, to give you life that will not end, and to bring you to a new heaven and new earth where God will make his home with us and we will be his people and he will wipe the tears from our eyes. Dear ones, the promises of chapter 8 are certain and we know that by the outstretched arms of Jesus.
Embrace them. Run into them. Lean into him and rejoice. For God makes all things work for the good of those who love him. For God so loved the world, including you and me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.